Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Greetings, Upper Room. I uh, was thinking about the fact this week that one of the things I love to say about our churches and tell other people when they ask, oh, what kind of church is it, especially for people who haven't been in church in a long time or don't know anything about faith, uh, is that we're a really multi-ethnic uh, church that, um, you know, we have over 40 nationalities that uh, are a part of Upper Room Community Church, which is really cool. Um, but I think one of the reasons I like to say it is because um, maybe people haven't expected that from religion or faith in the past, that it's maybe been more racially segregated, but also just because it's a, it's a, it's a thing, right? Multiculturalism, diversity is something they're talking about in schools, they're talking about in workplaces. It's something that we're very proud of as, as people who live in or near the GTA, you know, one of the most multicultural cities in Canada. And it is a great thing. But one of the things I've noticed is with the presence of more cultures, and the pluralism of religious faith and the diversity that exists in the places you work and go to school, not only is there the presence of you know, something to be proud of, multiculturalism, it comes with actually the possibility, the potential for um, xenophobia, which is you know, the fear of foreigners, um, with racism, prejudice, and, and just even divide and division. And it's been fascinating just to, you know, in, in watching what's been happening, not only from a kind of a health standpoint in terms of the coronavirus, but the effect on relationships and uh, culture, even in our own city. And it's actually presented an opportunity for people to be really afraid and to pull back. And not just fear of the disease, because even though there's education and there's um, things being sent out as preventative measures, there's facts that are being distributed so people aren't um, afraid. There's still that reaction, not just the fear of the disease, but actually pulling back, separating of even people groups. It's what caused, um, in, a, in an article in the Toronto Star a few weeks back called Masking Fear, uh, one of the city councillors to say this, at this point in time, given what is happening in Toronto and across the country, there will be probably more harm caused by racism, xenophobia, discrimination, harassment, racial taunts directed specifically to the Chinese Canadian community and others of Asian descent, then we will be actually harmed by the coronavirus itself. And that's just a comment, I think, on saying it, it's so interesting how quickly we moved to fear. Um, and not just, as I said, fear of the disease, but fear of the others or the people that we feel are propagating it or people groups or even whole nations. Now, it may be um, easy for us to point the finger at people who might turn this to racism or prejudice or avoid certain restaurants or people or areas of town and say, oh, that's, that's uneducated, that's ignorant, that's racist. But I think we have to acknowledge that within ourselves, there is this bent um, towards fear of the other. Um, the fear of the things or people or places or language or cultures or foods or religions we don't know and we don't understand. And, and we have to be honest, even um, faith has actually been, or religion has been sort of complicit in this over many years. I mean, really for, for, for centuries, for millennia, like uh, religions that... Um, uh, religions had gods associated with them, and the gods were tied to the tribe or to the ethnic group or the people group or the culture that that religion was a part of. And so in a sense, the gods reinforced the separation and maybe even the racism or prejudice or ethnocentricism. And so religion actually was, is, is part as being complicit in this whole thing. And I have to be honest, if I, if I look even inside myself, 
I've caught myself thinking or saying uh, about other religions that we see uh, an increasing presence of in our city. Oh, look, they're building a new mosque and oh, all of those people are moving into that neighborhood. That there is and can be within us, and I've noticed this, as I said, in myself, but even within sort of Christian circles, a fear or a hostility towards other faiths and other religions because we believe they're taking over. Or, in some respects, a, a, a hostility or fear or frustration with our culture and saying our culture is against faith or it's against Christian faith and they're taking uh, um, you know, prayer out of schools and look what they're doing. And that can breed fear. It can breed anger. It can breed criticism of our government, of people who don't support our beliefs or our faith. And, and all of it um, makes us move towards this sort of, you know, um, uh, at, at our own tribalistic kind of batten down the hatches, bunker mentality, us against the world, us and them um, dynamic. And while we understand that that happens, uh, we have to take a step back and say, is that actually um, the heart of the God that we love and follow? Part of the reason we're talking about this is this is Global Week. This is the end of our Global Week. Uh, we have uh, an amazing chance this morning to be part of our 30-minute market as we're raising funds for our initiatives around the world and our global partners. Um, but as we think about this and what it means to be globally minded, what it means to, to have a care and concern for the people and the nations that are around us and around the world in an increasingly global society, um, that we have to check ourselves and say, you know what, within us, there is this fear, this bent towards xenophobia, towards ethnocentrism, towards even a hostility that might be um, directed uh, against those we are afraid of or we're afraid of what other religions or a lack of religion might mean for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And wherever you happen to be in your faith journey, uh, or if you say, I don't even, I'm not even on one, I think if we're honest, we can identify within ourselves, there's all of that, we can quickly move to fear. What does it mean for us, though, to say, well, who is the God that we follow and worship? Is he like that? Is that his heart? Is it ethnocentric? Is it, is it marked by division and separation? And I think the resounding answer we can say is, no, that is not the God we follow and love. In fact, if you read scripture, very early on, God was taking great pains to describe to his people that he was not like other gods. He was not like just the head of a tribe and a religion and an ethnic group. Even though the story of our relationship with God began with him gathering a specific people, the children of Israel, his goal was always, as he said to them explicitly, I'm going to bless you and eventually through you bless all nations. That my heart is actually for all peoples and all nations everywhere. And that was what he wanted to do through them, but eventually to bless the whole world. And that his life and his identity and his love was not marked or kept in by fear and by hostility and by boundaries. What's interesting is that if you read the story that Israel either at times God's people didn't get it, that that was his heart, and they ended up drifting towards being ethnocentric, being focused on themselves and, and more interested in God's blessing for themselves and not that interested in God's blessing for the nations around them. Or at times they actively opposed and refused to um, follow what he was asking them to do, to go and be a blessing to the nations. And yet the reason we call the biographies of Jesus good news is because when God sent his son into the world, when he came into the world in the flesh, one of the most um, definitive things we can say about the way Jesus talked, the way Jesus lived, and how he taught about God was about the reckless, radically inclusive love of God. 
that God's heart was for all people, that Jesus seemed to ignore the boundaries that um, the well-ordered society had put up around religion and um, the divide between the moral and the immoral, the clean and the unclean, this ethnic group and that ethnic group, but that Jesus began to bring people together and bring them to God and tell them, this is the heart of God for you. We've spent a lot of time in the past in the biographies of Jesus for that very reason. But today we want to camp out um, as we end our global week in uh, a, a story in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts maybe is best described as um, like the biography of the church or the biography of the group of Jesus followers. So if the, if the four biographies of Jesus were about his life and, and how he interacted with people, the book of Acts is a biography of how did the community of Jesus followers um, which they were called the way, initially followers of the way. They weren't called Christians initially, the way of Jesus. How did they act? And, and that's so instructive, not just, it doesn't just tell us about what the first century church was like or the first church. It actually is instructive for us to say, to us in this culture, in this time where we might have um, an inclination to want to move towards fear and hostility and an us and them and a separation and a xenophobia or even racism or prejudice or uh, fear of religion and fear of what's happening in our culture, that the church and the book of Acts becomes instructive for us is what does it mean to be the community of people who are following a God like this? And we're going to zero in on one particular story, a story of two people who did not know each other, but end up having an interaction that not only changed their lives, it changed the history and the trajectory of the church itself at that time. And as a result, dramatically changed what it means for us to be a part of a church like this. And so my hope is as we get into that, it actually we find it's such a beautiful story that is not only about what happened then, but about what's happening now for us. The story is about two people. Um, the first one, uh, his name was Cornelius. And Cornelius was, um, I'm going to shorthand the story for you. It's so long in chapter 10, I'm not reading it for you this morning. But this is the story. Um, he was a Roman centurion. And so he, he led um, a group of about 80 to 100 Roman soldiers who were occupying and stationed in Caesarea Philippi. That's significant uh, later on. We'll tell you why that matters to the story. It says actually that even though he was a Roman and a Roman centurion, sort of sort of trained militia, they were the ones who brought in, if you think about martial law, that was how the Romans exacted and, and enforced their rule was through the military. Um, but he was a prayerful, God-fearing person. In other words, he, he honored God. He had a, some kind of sense or awareness of God and, and wanted to do good things by God, like do right by him or something like that. Um, and it says that it, while he was praying, he has this vision. And God appears to him and says, listen, I've heard you, I've seen you, I've seen the good things you're trying to do. I want you to go to Joppa, which was a, a port, seaport town about 40 miles away, and you're going to go find a man named Simon Peter. He didn't know who Peter was. Um, you're going to go find this man, Simon Peter, and bring him back to your house. That's all God said to him. I want you to go do this. We read also in Acts 10 at the same time, the next day, Peter, who some may have known him as St. Peter, um, was also something was going on in his life. He was a disciple of Jesus, maybe the, one of the most famous, if not the famous, most famous disciple of Jesus. He was a, the leader of the new movement. You know, he was considered to be, you know, one of the people who was closest to Jesus. He was leading the new movement of Jesus followers, partly because he was performing miracles. Like people were looking at what he was doing and saying, man, this man was close to Jesus. He kind of has the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had. He's doing things. And in the chapter before, he had just raised someone from the dead. 
Um, he also has, let's we can say, like a slightly trippier vision than what uh, Cornelius has. So it says he was up on the roof of his house praying, but he was hungry. So just be warned if you're praying on an empty stomach, some trippy visions might be coming. So he has this vision of food, but it was like this big sheet of food coming down full of animals, but they were all animals that for a Jewish person would have been considered unclean. Jewish law had very specific sort of these animals, these foods, this meat, these plants you can eat, these things you cannot. And it was all the stuff that as a, as a devout sort of God-fearing Jew for many, 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 many centuries, they were told, you don't eat this stuff. And so Peter says, he hears the voice saying, go ahead, eat. And he's like, no, I can't eat. It's unclean. And the word unclean, you have to think, is not just about dietary sort of laws, but it was all about religious sort of um, sacred cleanliness. Um, and, um, and so th this was a big deal. It wasn't just, oh, you can't put that in your mouth. It'll make you, it's like, it would, it would actually pollute you spiritually from the inside. And so Peter's like, no way. But the vision happens three times until it says, hey, don't call unclean what God has called clean. So he's having this weird vision trance dream. And at the same time, some men are knocking on the door who came from Cornelius. And God says to him, by the way, forget the vision. You're clearly not getting it. Go with these men. Um, where they're going to take you to Cornelius, you need to go with them. And so there's these two men, they don't know each other, separate parts of, of Palestine. God appears to them both in a vision. God gives them very specific instructions to go and get connected. And so, they see, so Cornelius is sending men to find this guy named Saint Simon Peter, saying to Peter, go with them. And so Peter goes. And as he goes, he comes back to Cornelius' house. He walks into the house. Cornelius is expecting him. Cornelius' family is there. He's laid out a meal. He's going to host Peter. And Peter says something you should never say when you walk over to someone's house for the first time. He says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Thank you, Peter. Great, like great opening line, right? What he's saying is, hey, I shouldn't even be in this house. Like for them to go into the house uh, would have made them unclean. He says even to visit or associate with a Gentile. Again, this comes back to this whole idea of like they would be spiritually polluted. These were people who were morally different from them. Religiously, they were different from them. Um, behaviorally, like their, their customs of everything was like, no, you can't, you can't even be with them. So Peter says, you know, I shouldn't even be doing this. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean because God doesn't. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And then later on, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. So this is really amazing. So God brings these two people together who otherwise didn't even know each other, but have nothing to do with each other. Um, and they come together. And as the story goes on to say, Cornelius says, well, I don't. I don't know. God just told me to send for you. So go ahead. Tell us what you want to tell us. Well, Peter realized at that moment, oh, I got to tell him about Jesus. And so he begins to explain to them, yeah, this God you've been serving and worshiping or whatever, it's actually Jesus. God sent his son into the world and he taught with authority and power. He performed miracles. He actually was killed. But three days later, God raised him from the dead and he is the Lord of all. In other words, the God you've been praying to, it's Jesus. You need to know that. And something amazing happens, even while Peter's actually just speaking the words, it says the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his family. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with even what that terminology means, 
there was a sign, the sign of like God's presence in, in the book of Acts, the biography of the church was that, was that God's spirit actually fell on people. In other words, filled them from the inside out. In other words, that they, they felt the spirit of God actually in them and, and it changing them from the inside out and their hearts became alive and all these signs that accompanied it. And so Peter knew in that moment, oh my goodness, God has come to these people too. That's why he says, oh, I realize now God doesn't show any favoritism. And so it's this beautiful story. They all get baptized, and it's amazing. And it's God bringing two people together who didn't know each other. And Peter comes with this message about Jesus. The man understands, that is the God I've been looking for. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And that's amazing in and of itself. But there's something remarkable about what Peter says. And I want you to, to, to think about this for a moment in the highlights verse. He says, but God has shown me I should not call anyone impure. I now realize how true it is God does not show favoritism. Now, let me ask you this question. When did Peter realize this? When, when did he say, oh, God has shown me? Just then. Like he just realized it. And you're like, yeah, no, he just realized it. But if you actually think about this for a moment, it's mind-blowing. How come Peter didn't get this? How come he just realized it now? If you look at the biographies of Jesus, what you'll see is that Peter spent three years face-to-face -face with Jesus, like walking with him, his, one of, if not his closest companion. Which means Peter was there, and we know he was, when a Roman centurion came up to Jesus. Another Roman centurion. And also a Gentile. Also someone who had been considered unclean. And said to Jesus, my servant is sick. You know, he needs healing. And you know what Jesus says? Let's go. Let's go to your house. Jesus was saying, oh, let's go. I'll, I'll, I'll associate with you. I'll go into your house. Just show me where. Now, the, the centurion actually said, oh, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not. He knew there was a clean, unclean thing. He's like, no, I'm too impure for you to come into my house. But Jesus was ready to go. Peter was also with Jesus when he went into Gentile territory, when he went and associated with people that apparently you weren't supposed to associate with or eat meals with. Not only that, Peter was there in Jesus' final days on the earth after his resurrection when he was giving them the download, right? About, okay, what does it mean now that I've died and risen from the dead and I'm, I'm going to start the church with you? He said to them, go everywhere to all nations and preach repentance and forgiveness of sins and tell them the good news about me. In other words, go and do this everywhere. This is what I'm calling you to do. To all nations. He said it to them a few times. Peter himself actually preached a sermon when the church started, the very first sermon in church, in a new church, about how God was going to give his spirit himself to all flesh, to all people. So Peter heard it. He had actually even said the words out of his mouth, and yet somehow he still didn't get it. He was still thinking us and them. He still had a fear of our separation of foreigners. He was still thinking clean, unclean. And it took this thing for God to say, no, that's not who I am. It's not how I think. It would be easy for us to judge Peter and say, you dummy. Like, you know, why? And I got, you got to love Peter. He let them write all this stuff about him. It doesn't make him look very good, but that's the beauty of it, right? Like, it's one of the reasons I know the scriptures are a true account, because if you were trying to just write a book to get people to follow you and call you St. Peter, which is what a lot of people say about the Bible. Oh, they just wrote it to get people. You wouldn't include all of these stories that make you look kind of dumb, kind of thick, right? But you say, okay, well, actually, we, we be honest, like there was so much um, difference between these two men. Like there were so many things that separated them. First of all, um, Cornelius was a, a Roman. Rome was the, um, the juggernaut of an empire that was at that very time trying to crush the followers of the way. 
People had been thrown in jail. People had been killed. Their own savior, Jesus, had been brutally crucified on a cross by Romans. Rome represented everything in the culture that was against the followers of the way, that was even against Jewish people. They had allowed the Christians, it was legal to go and plunder, like if you were on your way home from work and you needed your wife called you and said, honey, stop at the grocery store and pick up milk. You just walk into a Christian's house and just take it out of their fridge. Like you could plunder them and that was legal. And, and we know that even the persecution from the Roman emperors got worse and worse over time against the Christians. So the Romans, and as a Roman centurion, he represented a culture that was against everything that Peter stood for. Sound familiar? Right? He, he was, and so again, like Roman culture. Not only that, he was a Roman centurion. He was a Roman centurion. He was the one tasked with um, implementing Rome's brutal reign, the, the martial law. And the Roman centurions were head. They were probably some of the best fighters. In fact, they said in Caesarea Philippi, which is where he was from, historically, if you read Josephus's account of the Jews, uh, the antiquities of the Jews, who was a, he was a Jewish historian, not, not a follower of Jesus. But he noted that in Caesarea Philippi, the clash between um, Romans and Jews was, uh, or Syrians and Jews was quite high, and that the Roman soldiers had backed the Syrians and had slaughtered thousands of Jews. And so this man, maybe even himself, had been someone who had killed Jewish people, although we know that it says he was sympathetic to their cause, so maybe he didn't, but certainly his brethren, certainly maybe the, 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 uh, the group of soldiers that he commanded um, had been a part of exacting that brutal reign. And then he was a Gentile. He was a, and so Peter was, for, there, there's nothing these two had in common, right? Not culturally. Not, not religiously, not morally. He was unclean, like Peter said. Like all of the things he did and stood for and that his culture and everything, what the food they ate, their level of morality, what they thought was okay and right and wrong, their homes, everything was separate from them. And so Peter just had this kind of xenophobia or distance or whatever and saying, no, us and them. There was a separation still. For some reason, the words of Jesus to go to all nations, the love of God for all people had not kind of really sunk in to his heart. And so he was separate from him. But as he goes, it not only, um, you know, did something for him and the church, it's, it's hugely instructive for us. Two very significant things that I think, even though we are miles away from being in the particular situation they're in, we can all relate to feeling like there is a culture or community that is against our faith or against what we're trying to do. We can all relate to like having people in our lives that we feel a distance with, we don't understand. We don't understand their practices, their customs. We don't understand their religion. We, um, and, and maybe we just see them as sort of against us or not interested in us or, uh, or maybe, maybe even em enemies, you know, because this is certainly would have been someone who would have been classified as an enemy to a follower of Jesus. And two very significant things I think that are so instructive for us, first of all, you know, this tells us that this foreigner who was also represented the opposition, who was the least likely to, and who was the enemy was actually seeking God and God was seeking him. It never crossed Peter's mind that someone who would have been a foreigner, who represented the opposition, who would the least likely to, and who was actually even the enemy was actually seeking God. He had no idea that that man was seeking God and that God was actually seeking him. And this is so true, we have no idea. We can look at people and see them as just different from us or different from a different religion or um, even someone who's an opposition who represents kind of a culture that's you know, against what we believe in or what we're uh, trying to do in our lives. Or people even we would see as enemies, but we have no idea what's actually going on in their lives that perhaps, and for sure, at least in this case and in many other cases, they are actually seeking God and God 
is seeking them. God came to Peter. It was all God's initiative. They otherwise would never have met. God brings a vision to both of them. He brings a word to both of them, and he brings them together. And Peter begins to realize, wait, this man is actually seeking God, and God was seeking him. We have no idea what's going on in the lives of people that we live sort of in this land with the distance, with an us and them, with a xenophobia, with a fear of others, with a separation, and God is actually doing something in their lives that we're not even aware of that we need to wake up to. But secondly, this wasn't a story of one person who knew it all and had it together and was going to this Gentile, this person who doesn't know Jesus, and I'm going to tell you all the truth so that you can become a follower of Jesus too. Actually, both of them were radically changed. Both of them needed to know Jesus more. Do you get that? Both of them were radically changed. Peter says, oh my gosh, I understand it now. I should have got it before. I'd even said stuff like this before, but it hadn't actually penetrated my heart. I hadn't actually realized God radically uh, loves all nations, all people, and is willing to do all kinds of things to bring them close to him. I had said it before, but I, my heart didn't know it. And that's why he actually has, a, has as much of a conversion experience as Cornelius does. They both needed to know Jesus more. For Cornelius, it changed his life. He understood, oh, this is the God I've been actually praying to. His family got baptized. It changed the whole trajectory of his life. But it did for Peter too. And not only for him, but for the church, the community of Jesus followers at that time. Because we know Peter references this story as something that happened to him that changed his mind two other times in his prominent role of leading the church, as they were beginning to wrestle with the fact that they had mostly just stayed to themselves as Jewish Christians and hadn't realized that God was actually bringing a whole new movement to the world from every nation and that they were meant to care and love for all people. Peter used this story twice to campaign the church to think differently about themselves and about who they loved and about clean and unclean and all this. So we know it didn't just change Peter, it radically changed his leadership of the church and it turned the church away from the natural bent of ethnocentrism, of us and them, of clean and unclean, and brought them into a whole new place, which is now the tradition we are a part of as well. And that's the beauty of this, friends. It wasn't just what happened to them. It wasn't just what happened to the early church. It's what needs to happen to us too as over and over we realize the bent we have towards inward, towards fear, towards hostility, towards separation, towards xenophobia, towards racism, towards prejudice, towards all of that, that God is constantly kind of break those boundaries apart and open our heart to love people the way he loves and to say Jesus is the Lord of all. He came for everyone. Forgiveness of sins is available for everyone. Hope, purpose, grace, meaning, love is for everyone. It's part of why we, um, we partner with uh, two international workers, and that's what IW means. We are actually part of a family of churches that has 250 international workers that are all over the world. And we've chosen to sort of, we're linked to two in particular, the Kennedys in Central Asia and Lizette Lavoie in Guinea, West Africa. You know what's beautiful about the, these two groups of people? Um, they are not people who have said, oh, we have it all together. We're going to go over there and tell those people who don't know about Jesus about Jesus. When the Kennedys, they were actually a part of Upper when we first started, and they felt God calling them to go overseas. So they went to a country in Central Asia for an exploration trip. To, they were both professionals here working in engineering and finance, went over there, and they said, God, if you want us to stay here, give us a love for the people of this country. Like, we don't know this country well. We don't know anyone personally in it. If you want us to be here, we have to actually learn. And they came home after two weeks and said, yes, we, we want to be. We suddenly, like, we couldn't even explain it. We had a love 
You know how it's explained? Because the love of God that, that God has for that, that people group and that country was poured into their hearts. And they're there. They've started a business to try to improve the economy, to try to, be, um, to, to create jobs, to show a different way of, of handling money and doing business and doing life. Um, they've also, their kids go to local schools there. They live in the community. Their goal is to love the people and to be present with them, to be relationally present with them. Same with Lizette. One of the most beautiful moments I had with her was in, in, in the crisis of Ebola that was ravaging West Africa and Guinea in particular. Our denomination actually pulled, you know, brought her home for a period of time because they were worried for her life, understandably. But she called me and said, "Vijay, I, I should not be in Canada. I need to go back with my people. My people need me now. Like this is the the time of their greatest need. I can't leave." <clears throat> and this is beautiful. You say, "Oh, her people." It's like, yeah. Well, she wasn't born in West Africa. She was born here in Ontario. She was a school teacher until age 40, and then went over there. But now she's like, "These are my people. I love them. I'm connected to them. I want to be there." And that's what the heart of God is saying. These are my people because they are God's people and these are people God loves. And so the Shalom Home, the Kids in Crisis Center that she leads uh, in Guinea is home to about 50 or so orphans or kids infected or affected by HIV that are part of that home. And what the Kennedys are doing in terms of building relationships and the network of people uh, they employ and the people that they're uh, friends with in their neighborhood, these are people that they love. And we have come around them and are supporting them in that. And so we're actually sending... Um, two teams. One, a team of high schoolers that's going uh, to visit the Kennedys and run a camp for a bunch of kids there in Central Asia. And then a team that's going to Guinea, which is, I think, the fourth or fifth team that we've sent there um, to work with Lizette and, and actually talk about the, the permanent home that we're trying to help them build there. And as part of that, we're raising $35,000 to, um, to help with the Shalom Home for, for the HIV meds, for food, for the rent, for security, and all of that stuff there. And also some money to help our high schoolers who are going on this trip. And the reason we're doing this is because <clears throat> this is what it means to be present, to be with um, the people that God is for, to say, no, we actually need to go and to be part of this, to be relationally connected to them as we have these two families, these uh, friends and people who are part of our family who are over there, we support them by praying, by giving, by sending, by going, by raising money, by being a part of all of this. And so what does that mean for us as we are people who want to fight the inclination to be afraid, to shrink back, to have an us and them mentality, um, to, to recognize that, that God's heart is actually for all people and that God is not put off or feels powerless because he's on the margins somehow and the majority religion is not interested in what we're doing or anything like that, that God is actually sending us out. So what does that mean? <clears throat> well, you've heard of eat, pray, love. This is an eat, pray, walk <laughs> encouragement to you. Actually, that's what this story in Acts 10 is about. They were praying. God spoke to them. They began to walk to each other, and then they ate together, and they realized, wow, God is with us in this place. Um, that's actually when we send teams, that's actually what we're doing. Like some people say, oh, a short-term missions trip, two weeks, does it actually even help? Well, both of these people would say, yes, they've asked us to come. So they need the help and they want the help. But this is actually about being with them, praying with them, walking in the places they walk, seeing where they live, seeing the people that they minister to, being in their neighborhoods, being in Shalom Home, eating with them. Um, the, the kids who are going actually, uh, the senior highs get to live in local homes, families and be with new people, eat with them. Them to be uh, like Peter was with Cornelius in those places. This is a part of why we send teams. And maybe so down the road, you'll think, okay, I'm not some superhero, but I actually want to eat, pray, walk. I want to go and do this. But then we also do that as we support them. And you can do this where you live. For some of you, this may be just saying like, okay, I need to pray. I need to, to pray. Because that's how this started for Peter and Cornelius is saying, God, 
Who do you want me to meet with? Who do you want me to connect with? Who are you at work? I can't see. It looks to me like there's a, there's a religious divide between us and them, that there's a, there's a cultural divide, that there's political or whatever the divides are, whatever the things that break us apart. That's all I see. But God, I don't see what you see, that you're at work in their lives. So show me, open my eyes. When we pray, we can pray for that. God, who in my school, who in my neighborhood, who in my workplace um, in, in where I live? For some, it may be just walking, walking across the street to somebody you've seen but you've never connected with, walking across the cafeteria to actually eat with someone who seems like maybe they're an outsider or for whom you've had a distance between, maybe someone that you even considered as your enemy or is against you. What does it mean to actually walk towards them? What does it mean to actually eat with them? Whatever that, that step begins there. It may be that you end up going overseas permanently. Maybe you go with a team. It may be you get involved directly in some um, you know, group or movement here of actually bringing Jesus to. But all of us have this opportunity to do this wherever we are. And the reason to do it is not just because it's not even at all because God says you should do this. It's not just because God wants to actually is seeking people that we're not even aware of. It's not just because God wants to radically change their lives and show them more who Jesus is. It's because God wants to do that for me. He wants to do that for you. That we all need to know Jesus more. And that is the gift. That is the beauty. That's why God invites us to eat, to pray, to walk, so that we can be radically changed, so that we can know Jesus more.